Hi, everybody. I'm so glad you joined us today. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith, and I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. Today, we start a new series about how to find rest in our souls and how to thrive even during restless times. So this week, I saw an article, and it's headlined, Infecting Our Dreams, Pandemic Sabotages Sleep Worldwide. And here's part of what it says. For millions of people around the world dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, sleep brings no relief. The horrors of COVID-19 and the surreal and frightening ways it has upended daily life are infecting dreams and exposing feelings of fear, loss, isolation, and grief that transcend culture, language, and national boundaries. Experts say humanity has rarely experienced collective dreaming on such a broad scale in recorded history. The psychological toll is staggering. So during this challenging time we're living in, not sleeping, of course, just makes everything worse. Those who have researched sleep tell us that good sleep makes it more likely that we'll be healthy and live long lives. Good sleep promotes the creativity and focus that we need to solve problems. Good sleep increases our stamina and ability to perform physically at high levels. Good sleep actually helps us maintain weight. God knows that I need to be sleeping better. Good sleep reduces stress and depression and promotes a general sense of well-being. So this is an obvious truth. If you want to live a healthy life, if you want to thrive at life, you need to spend about one-third of your life asleep. But even with that being true, I submit that it's possible to sleep but not rest. We can sleep well and still be restless. Rest is something more than physiological sleep. Rest happens in our soul. Let me say that again. Rest happens in our soul. To really live, we need rest in our souls. And when we have rest in our souls, we're more likely to sleep well and we're more likely to thrive at all of life. Now, I think that the biggest problem we face isn't a lack of sleep, but rather weary souls. And for that, I have something infinitely better to offer you than a prescription for Ambien. I want to talk to you about a promise that Jesus made, that he offered to all of us who will but believe in him. The promise is in Matthew chapter 11. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is one of the greatest promises ever made, and it was made by someone who keeps his promises if we believe in him. I want to discuss this passage today and some other thoughts that I have about soul rest and I want to organize my thoughts like this. Three thoughts, very creative. Three thoughts on moving from weariness to life. 
Three thoughts on moving from weariness to life. Here's the first one. Soul rest affects all the rest. Soul rest affects all the rest. What I mean is that when you have rest in your soul, it affects the rest of life in profound and powerful ways. The soul is the essence of who we are. It is our life force. In its etymology in Scripture, meaning what the word originally meant and how it came to be used, in its etymology in Scripture, meaning the word soul, in both Old and New Testaments, the word soul had to do with breath. God breathed into material bodies, and therefore we became living souls. The soul is the animating agency of human beings. In this respect, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. The soul is not a what, but a who, and the who is you. Your soul is who you are in the depth of your being. And the soul cannot be separated from the rest of who you are. What happens in your soul affects everything about your person. Eugene Peterson, the translator of the Bible into what we know of as the message, wrote in in one of his books this about the soul. He wrote, the term soul is an assertion of wholeness, the totality of what it means to be a human being. It signals an interiority that permeates all exteriority, an invisibility that everywhere inhabits visibility. He went on to say, without soul, we would be a jumble of disconnected parts, lumps of protoplasm. The term soul works like a magnet, pulling all the pieces of our lives into a unity, a totality. The human person is a vast totality. Soul names it as such. I also like something that Douglas Webster wrote in his book, Soulcraft. He said, we are neither bodiless souls nor soulless bodies but bodies and souls in community. This is to say that there is an interconnectivity between our soul and our body and everything else in life. So, when Jesus promised us rest for our soul, he was talking about a rest in the very core of who we are, a rest that affects everything that we are. Jesus gives us rest in our souls. And this is especially hopeful in troubling times. Richard Foster wrote a wonderful book called Prayer that I've referenced many times. And in it, he talked about the prayer of rest. I love um, the calming effect of his words in this regard. Here's what he wrote, one short paragraph. Through the prayer of rest, God places his children in the eye of the storm. When all around us is chaos and confusion, deep within we know stability and serenity. In the midst of intense personal struggle, we are still and relaxed. While a thousand frustrations seek to distract us, we remain focused and attentive. This is the fruit of the prayer of rest. Jesus promises us rest in our soul that allows us to be at rest in spite of what's going on around us and even, I'll go on to say, 
to be at rest in a way that affects the things around us in positive ways. Now this begs the question, does the material world around us determine our reality or does the immaterial world of the soul shape material reality? Now this may be a question only I'm asking, but I ask it nonetheless and I'm going to try to answer it briefly. The fact is what's happening in our soul is the most important thing because what's happening in our soul affects all of our person, even our physical person, and I believe impacts on the environment around us. And I think it's also possible that what's happening cumulatively in our souls affects not only who we are as individuals, but affects the world itself. If we have rest in our soul, it makes a difference in us and the world around us. So you've heard uh, the expression, of course, mind over matter. This is, in fact, a scientifically proven reality. Remember now, the soul is the essence of who we are, the seat of our personality, our thoughts, our feelings, desires, decisions. Though immaterial, meaning of course that it cannot be seen, it is inextricably linked to our bodies. Materialists believe that physicality, genetics, DNA coding, the wiring of our brain, and so on, determines our personhood. But... More and more people, even scientists, perhaps especially scientists, are coming to understand that our soul is the seat of our personhood and powerfully influences our physiology and everything else about our life. I like the work of Dr. Caroline Leaf. I've referenced her before. She's a communication pathologist uh, and a highly regarded researcher in, in, the, in the discipline of cognitive neuroscience. She's a pioneer in the field of neuroplasticity. And the field of neuroplasticity, don't worry about the size of the word, but the field of neuroplasticity is the field where it's, they're studying how what we think affects the brain, in fact, even changes the brain and affects our behavior. Here's part of what she said. Scientists are proving that the relationship between what you think and how you understand yourself, your beliefs, dreams, hopes, and thoughts, has a huge impact on how your brain works. Research shows that 75 to 98% of men mental, physical, and behavioral illness comes from one's thought life. It is the quality, she says later, of our thinking and choices, our consciousness, and our reactions that determine our brain architecture, the shape or design of the brain, and resultant quality of the health of our minds and bodies. Research shows that DNA actually changes shape according to our thoughts. I'll read that again. Research shows that DNA actually changes shapes according to our thoughts. I've actually read research about how that when we think a thought often enough, that new wiring literally forms in our brain. 
The fact is that what's happening on the level of soul, in the immaterial world of us, in the depth of who we are, is affecting everything in our life. Now here's why I've taken a few moments to make that point. It's to say that when Jesus promised us rest for our soul, this was not a promise quarantined into the immaterial or spiritual realms of our lives and therefore irrelevant to what's happening in our bodies or in our families or on our jobs or in this world or during this this pandemic he was saying that he'll give us rest for our weary souls and we understand that when he tells us that that this affects everything in the world around us in profoundly positive ways from our souls we shape reality in the physical world a rested soul brings health to our bodies and relationships and finances and neighborhoods and communities the most important thing we can do for ourselves always but especially in this time is to have rest in our souls the most important thing that we can do for the people that we love, is to have rest in our souls. The most important thing we can do for the world around us that we're supposed to care about is to have rest in our souls. Now here's my second point. It's this, to rest in our souls, we must take Jesus' yoke. So the first point is that what happens in our souls affects everything in our life. My second point is to tell you how that we can have rest in our souls, and it's to hear the invitation of Jesus to partner with us in our lives to take his yoke upon us. So uh, there is a psychologist named Milton Rokich who wrote a book called The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. Um, he was uh, a serving in a, in a psychiatric ward in a hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And he had three cases, three men who had uh, what he called in part a Messiah complex. They believed that they were, were God uh, and that they had been sent to the world to save the world. And so he, he tried to treat each of them individually with no success and then decided to bring them together thinking that perhaps they could convince each other that in fact the other one wasn't Jesus. And so one of them said, you know, I'm Jesus and I came to save the world. And, and the, psych the psychologist said, how do you know that? And, and the guy said, because God told me. And then another guy uh, uh, pipes up and says, no, I didn't tell you that. All of them thought that they were Savior. And uh, this was a diagnosable psychiatric condition. Well, the, the reality is that it's crazy to be our own saviors or to try to be our own saviors and the saviors of our worlds. But in practicality, many of us live like we are. See, at the heart of original sin was the desire of people to be like God. I think that we know that we're not God. But we need to stop trying to act like God, meaning acting as if everything depended on us as if we have the power to fix everything, as if we are in control. When we are trying to, if you please, save ourselves and the world around us, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to act like God when you are not God. 
See, Jesus came to save us from our own efforts, to save ourselves and try to save everybody else. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translated the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 11, again, he wrote, Are you tired? This is Jesus saying, uh, saying these words. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. See, part of this promise that Jesus offered to give us rest in our soul was to free us from, from any form of self-help religion where in some way we're trying to save ourselves and save the world around us. I like the fact that Eugene Peterson talks about uh, in this passage, Jesus is speaking to people who were burned out on religion. And th the reason Jesus was saying that is because he was talking to people who were in fact exhausted by their own religious efforts. Jesus was talking in specificity about how the leaders of Judaism, particularly uh, this group called the Pharisees, had imposed a yoke and a burden on people that they weren't able to handle. And they were absolutely exhausted. They had so many rules to follow, to be observant Jews, that it was impossible to keep them all. And they were exhausted by their effort. Religion improperly understood, will mess us up. If religion is about rules and laws that we're supposed to carry out in our own strength in order to earn the favor of God, then religion brings a deep soul weariness. We were not meant to be our own saviors. Perhaps you've uh, heard the story about the priest, the preacher, and the rabbi. Uh, this is to say that sometimes religion can be funny. Um, so these three men, this priest, preacher, and rabbi, were chaplains of a university somewhere in Montana, and they would get together once or twice a week to, to share notes and, and encourage one another. And one thing led to another, and they decided to do an experiment. They decided that preaching to people was easy, but that it would really be a challenge to preach to a bear. And so they each decided to go into the woods, find a bear, and try to convert the bear to their own religion. Seven days later, as planned, they came back together to discuss their experience. Well, uh, Father Flannery, the priest, had his arm in a sling, and he was on crutches, and he had various bandages, and he said that he found a bear and started to read the bear, the catechism, and the bear wanted nothing to do with that and slapped him around. So he said he quickly grabbed holy water, sprinkled it on the bear, and in his words, Holy Mary, Mother of God, that bear became gentle as a lamb. Well, 
The preacher went next. Reverend Billy Bob had one arm and both legs in cast and an IV drip attached to his wheelchair. But he still, uh, with stirring or oration, told his story. He said he went out, he found a bear, he began to preach to him, but the bear wanted nothing to do with him. The bear chased him. They started wrestling up and down a hill, and finally they fell into a creek. And, 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 and the reverend said that he baptized the bear, and he said as soon as he did, the bear became as gentle as a lamb. And he said, me and the bear spent the rest of the day praising Jesus. And then they looked down at the rabbi. The rabbi was lying in a hospital bed. He was in a body cast and traction, and there were IVs running in and out with multiple monitors beeping and glowing at his bedside. He was in seriously bad shape. But with a raspy whisper, he simply gave this account of his story. He said, well, looking back on it, circumcision may not have been the best way to start. Now see, I think that's funny. I'll give you just a moment to get it. Sometimes religion is funny. But here's the reality. Religion taking to its obvious conclusions can often be tragic. When religion is about trying to keep some set of religious rules, especially those who have been made up by, by, by men primarily, in order to have peace with God and peace in one's heart, then that kind of religion, it'll suck the life out of you. It's where Jesus said, are you worn out, burn out on religion? He was talking to people who were under a heavy yoke of the law and the burdens that it imposed on people. Here's something else Matthew's gospel has Jesus saying. He, he said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. See, this wasn't so much about the law of Moses. This was about the hundreds of rules that had been added to the law by zealous religious leaders over many years. And the weight of all of that religious stuff on the backs of people had caused them to be weary in their souls. But Jesus is asking them to change that yoke, the yoke of the law, for a yoke that he would actually share with them. See, a yoke uh, was a wooden frame designed to join two animals, typically oxen, who, would, who were joined together to do some kind of work, perhaps to pull a plow in a field. Jesus was asking people to get yoked up with him, and in effect he was saying, if you'll do that, I will help you. Do whatever work it is that you're called to do. I will help you carry your burden. Jesus was not promising that uh, there wouldn't be a high standard, that there wouldn't be expectations, that in fact there wouldn't be law that we'd have to follow. But in the New Testament, it's called the law of Christ, and Jesus promises to help us keep it. It's a, it's a higher standard than the law the people in Jesus' day were keeping. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uh, talked at some length about how that, that he had come uh, to fulfill the law, that he, he, he kept the law, he fulfilled the law, and he is introducing to us a higher law. 
Now, we're considered to have kept the law of Moses when we believed in Jesus. But it doesn't mean that there's not a law for us to keep. Now we keep the law of Christ. And, in, and again, it's a higher standard than the law of Moses. In Matthew 5, Jesus talked about how that the Pharisees and teachers of the law would say, for instance, he said, they say, don't commit murder. But, he says, I'm going to up the ante. I say that if you have hatred in your heart towards a brother, that you've committed murder. He said, they say, their law says, um, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. He said, they say, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, turn the other cheek. It wasn't that there wasn't a law that, that we're to follow. It's just that... Jesus is saying, I'm actually going to help you fulfill it. He actually is going to do something in our souls. He actually is going to write his law in our heart. He actually is going to give us the desire to do the things he calls us to do. And he actually, by his spirit, is going to help us do it. He says, take my yoke upon you because my burden is easy. And it also doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of work to do, both good works to do, not to be saved, but to uh, live out the life God destined for us, and also just good hard work to make uh, our contribution to this world. Work uh, was not a bad thing. In fact, when Jesus talks in, in, in Matthew 11 about taking his yoke upon them, and he talks about giving them rest, uh, he wasn't talking about giving them rest from work, but giving them rest in their work. Even while we face the challenges of life, even while we try to live good lives, even while we try to live according to the standard, the law of Christ, we're not doing it in our own strength and power. That's the difference between the religion, between religion and the gospel. The good news is that Jesus comes to help us live this more and better life that we're called to. I know what it is to, to work in a way where I know that I'm, I'm in my, my own effort. I'm trying to just do it myself. I'm going to try to make it happen. Whether that's working on something on myself in my own life or working on something in the world around me. And then I know what it is to really believe the gospel. To, to lean into the promise of Jesus. To, to, to trust that he is at work in me and through me. And that, that I can do the work I've been called to do. Maybe the same work I was doing over here, but now I'm doing it in faith, and therefore I'm experiencing an easy yoke, if you please, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Here's my third thought. We take his yoke and enter his rest through faith. So here's another passage that we're going to focus on in, in coming weeks, if you'll hang in there with us. It's where uh, the writer to the Hebrews, those uh, uh, first century Jewish followers of Jesus, the writer of the Hebrews wrote this, Hebrews 4 verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. Now, we'll talk in a moment about who they were. 
But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their, disobedi- uh, because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rest from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Now, I know that's a lot. I'll treat it briefly today. First of all, when the writer refers to people who had received good news but didn't believe it and didn't obey and therefore didn't enter God's rest, he's referring to the Israelites who had been delivered from Exodus, led through the wilderness by Moses, taken to the promise of the promised land, and had the opportunity to cross the river Jordan and enter the promised land and secure what God had promised them, you know, centuries before. But they, they didn't believe God and they didn't obey and they didn't enter God's rest. And Scripture tells us that God was angry at them for not entering this rest he had promised. He was angry at them. In fact, Hebrews 3 tells us that God said that the people treated him with contempt because they didn't believe him. It's it's, it's referenced there as the sin of unbelief. How did they miss God's rest? Because they didn't believe. Why did God become angry at them? Because he's offering them rest and they wouldn't enter it. They didn't believe him. This was sin not believing and obeying God as God offered them something so beautiful as this rest. Well, uh, God's rest could widely be defined as anything that God has promised that we can enter when we believe enough to obey. Now, the most literal explanation of the rest here is the rest that comes when we believe the gospel and we enter into a relationship with God. We're considered to have entered into God's rest. All right, but we, we can extrapolate from that and the whole of Scripture that rest can also represent anything God's promised us, that He said we can have, that He said He will do for us, that we don't believe, that we don't then make every effort to enter. See, I believe that there are things in all of our lives that God's promised us, things that He said in His Word that He promises us. Uh, things that he's spoken into our own hearts that he's promised us, that if, if, if we want to have it, we have to believe him, and then we have to, we have to uh, uh, take action to enter whatever it is that God's called us to. Now, the, the bad example of this, again, are the children of Israel who didn't believe. Here's part of that story. Remember when Moses led the children of Israel to the border of the promised land that he chose 12 spies, one man from every tribe of Israel, and they were to go into the area, the the land that God had promised, and they were supposed to spy it out. 
And they did for 40 days. They went and they spied out the land that God had promised their forefather Abraham generations before, centuries before. And they came back and reported to Moses and and the people that the land was even more and better than what what they had, had ever imagined. But they said, we don't think that we can go into the land because there are so many giants that are facing us. Numbers chapter 13, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people, again, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Then Caleb, along we learn later with Joshua, silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. I mean, this is really fascinating to me. Joshua and Caleb were watching the same news, if you please, as the other 10 spies. But in the In the context of God's promises, the ten spies received everything as bad news where Joshua and Caleb were able to to see whatever obstacles they faced as good news because they knew that God had promised that if they would partner with him and enter the land, that he would work with them and that he would help them secure everything he had promised. What happened? Well, God became angry at the ten who didn't believe and an entire generation wandered in the wilderness, not able to enter God's rest. What does the writer of the Hebrews say? He warns each of us not to make the same mistake. He essentially says when God offers you a promise, believe it. When God offers you a promise, act on it. When God offers you rest, you receive that rest by believing him and then entering into whatever it is he said. It doesn't mean that there aren't giants. It doesn't mean that there won't be challenges. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have to fight to secure sometimes what God promised you. Now, now not the gospel itself, but all the promises that come with it. Oft times come with struggle. The fact is when the children of Israel entered the promised land, which God had called their rest, they spent you know, several hundred years securing what God had promised. But it was okay, and the reason it was okay is because God had told them that he would go with them and that what he had promised would get done. They were to take his yoke, if you please, partner with him and enter the promise. And even though there would be struggles, it would be considered rest. Here's what God had said to Moses in this this regard. Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I mean, this is amazing. When God promised him rest as it concerned leading the people in the promised land, it didn't mean that it would be easy, yet it did mean it would be easy. It would be easy even when it was hard because his 
presence would be with them. When Jesus calls us to take his yoke upon us, he's calling us to partner with him, to lean into him, to let him help us, to do what needs to be done in us and what needs to be done in the world around us. Now I want to encourage all of us now, in light of all that I've just said, what would it look like for you to enter God's rest? What would it look like for you in the face of all the challenges that you face, that we face in this moment, to face all these challenges, but have rest in our souls? The answer for you and me is actually fairly simple. It begins with this. We have to believe. We have to believe Jesus when he tells us that if we'll take his yoke upon us, that we'll enter his rest. And even though we face challenges, somehow his yoke is easy and the burden will be light. Now everything that needs to be, be done in terms of us believing the gospel and coming in the right relationship with God has already been done. Our only effort there is to confess our faith in Jesus and then we begin to follow him. Now, as we begin to follow him, we're called to do good works and now our effort gets involved, but, but it's a sweatless effort, if you please, because when we trust in Jesus, he's at work in us. He's working in us. He's working through us. But in order for that to happen, we have to believe. We confess our faith in Jesus at the beginning, and we have to confess, get to confess our faith in Jesus every day. So what would it be like for you to get up tomorrow and take a deep breath and say, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you give me rest today. I believe with all the things that I'm facing today that I can be saved from weariness, from an exhausted soul, and find rest in you. That somehow, even today while I work, even today as in some ways I face the struggles of this time, as I face the giants of this time, that I face them, but your presence is with me, and you're, you're helping me to live from an interior that's full of you and, and that believes in your promises and that's shaping the reality of my own person and the environment around me. I encourage you today, even, even in this moment, take a deep breath and just tell Jesus you believe his word and you believe his word to you. Do not look at the world around you and see bad news. Mix it with the truth of the gospel that Jesus is for you and that Jesus is in you and that Jesus is working through you and that Jesus is working for you. Believe that. That, as simple as it may seem, is the beginning of having rest in your soul. Now listen, if you've never confessed your faith in Jesus, if you've never confessed your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to do it now. See, when we confess our faith in Jesus, we, we state that we believe in our hearts 
that the, the, the good news of the gospel is true, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he gives us life, his very life. And the way we receive it is through faith. We confess our faith in Jesus and we're saved. If you've never confessed your faith in Jesus, I encourage you, confess your faith in Jesus today. And then for those of us who have, I confess my faith in Jesus at six years old, but I'll tell you, I get up every day and I confess my faith again. And when I confess my faith in him, I'm telling him, I believe that he's already done what needs to be done to help me today, to face whatever I face today, to accomplish the things he's given me today, to receive his promises in my life today. I believe. Jesus, I believe in you and everything that you've promised to me. When we say that, we enter through the portal into a place called His Rest. Okay, before I say the benediction today, let me just, let me just remind you that, um, that, that obviously we're not physically gathering at this time. I miss everybody so much and look forward to seeing you and I look forward so much to meeting so many of you who are watching us online but, but we haven't had the opportunity to see in person. Um, so I, 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 I want to encourage you to remember that many of the things that we used to physically do we now are doing online including giving. If this is the time that you choose to tithe and give, uh, you can see how to do that on your screen. We've made it very, very easy for you. And I want to encourage you to be faithful in your tithing and generous in your giving. Look, if you're new to us and you've not uh, made this your church home and perhaps uh, you're not tithing here or regularly giving here, but you want to support in same, some way what we're doing, you can note in, uh, in, when you press the button for giving, that there's a COVID-19 response giving opportunity. And this is where people are giving above their regular tithes and offerings here at TLCC to help us to respond to this crisis. We're feeding thousands of hungry people, doing many other good things, and uh, uh, spending a lot of resources to move everything we do online. If you just want to bless us and support us in some way, well, I encourage you to do that. You can do that there or, or you can give in any way you'd like and you'll again you'll see how to do that online now let me say the benediction the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord be gracious to you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace I pray this week that each of us will enter God's rest many of us have but we need to through faith consciously enter it again and again we need to know and I pray that you'll know this week that God is at work in you and through you and for you and you can rest in that and I pray that each of us will hear and receive the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 10 where he promised us life in all of its fullness more and better life than we ever dreamed of. May we each live the life that God dreamed for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.